After the occasion of Holy Week, now we return to our journey through the Gospel of Jesus by the Apostle John. And our passage this week focuses on one of the most powerful and memorable signs in Jesus' ministry. It takes place in the aftermath of Jesus feeding thousands and that crowd responding with an attempt to make Jesus king by force. And we see this in chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. And in response, Jesus withdraws from everyone up into the hill. He withdraws from the crowd. He withdraws from his very own disciples. And he heads into the hills, which now brings us to our passage today, John chapter 6, verse 16 through 21. And what I'd like to take a moment to focus upon is not what's in John's presentation of this event, but instead what's missing. The details that we would expect to read, but don't find. There's no explanation why the disciples just up and leave and set sail across the Sea of Galilee without Jesus. They leave them behind. There's no description of the terrible circumstances confronting the disciples as they struggle to preserve their lives against the storm. There's no mention of what the disciples were thinking when they saw the terrifying sight of a figure moving across the surface of the water toward their boat. There's an absence of what we might consider relevant details to fully understand the situation. And if we were interested in such information, we'd need to look to the Gospel accounts of Matthew or Mark to get them. So, why is John's account of this event so sparse on the details that we'd expect to see? Put simply, he's only interested in focusing your attention on what really matters. He's not interested in drawing your attention to all of the details. Instead, John's account peels back what we might otherwise consider expected information, even useful information, so that his readers will focus their attention on what matters most. So then, the question that's worth asking as we consider this passage What matters most about Jesus' sign of walking on water? His fifth sign. What's most significant about Jesus' sign of walking on water? And as we examine this, we'll see that the answer really is that Jesus is the one that saves us from our fears. We're looking at it from this angle because, essentially, John doesn't really get into the details. But what we know is that this is a confrontation of a situation overall of fear in all of the circumstances to which Jesus rescues. You know, it's often so easy to identify problems. Would you not agree? It's often so easy to identify problems, to diagnose issues. In fact, we can get pretty good at seeing what's wrong. 
there can be a tendency to focus so much of our attention on what's wrong that we lose sight of seeking out what makes things right. That we can disproportionately focus our attention upon our fears and not what brings salvation from fear. The fear itself is less important than knowing the source of relief from fear. Right? It's a tendency to be able to look so often at the problem, what ails and what causes fear in our lives, that as we focus attention on that, that we lose sight of really seeking out what solves, what rescues, what brings relief from fear. To understand the significance of Jesus' walking on water as a sign and how he saves us from fear, there are three points from our passage that I want to highlight today. The first of these is, Jesus is the God that hovered over the face of the waters. In answer to the question, what matters most about Jesus' sign of walking on water, when we understand that Jesus saves us from our fears, he saves us from our fears because Jesus is the God that hovered over the face of the waters. When we look at our passage, we see the disciples out in the middle of the, the Sea of Galilee. In fact, they're three or four miles in, and they're still like a mile, two miles from shore. They're in the middle of open waters. And while the, while the water and the surface of the water is stirring and it is whipping around and the waves are crashing, what is the imagery that we're seeing, that the disciples are seeing? They look across and they see a figure coming towards them over the water, over the surface of the water. It's hard to really consider that imagery without thinking about some, something else. And it's something that John brings up in his gospel. He brings it up from the get-go, from the beginning, and so it's not something that is coincidental. And what is that? John, from the beginning of his presentation of the gospel, talks about Jesus, and he talks about Jesus from the standpoint of him being God who was in the beginning, who was at the beginning, who is creator. Well, what do we know when we go back to Genesis and we look at the account of the beginning? It's that the surface of the world is, is covered in water and there is darkness. And to that darkness, in the midst of that darkness, there is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. You see, when it comes to water and hovering and standing upon water, that's something that only God does. And that imagery is something that John intentionally brings to mind as he draws our attention away from other details to Jesus going and crossing on the surface of the sea. The same Jesus that just hours earlier people declared as the prophet and were seeking to make king by force is now demonstrating his sovereign power. You don't just stand on the waters. Even the stirring waters of the stormy seas aren't able to contain and force Jesus under its power because he is the creative force behind all creation. It's also worthy and noteworthy to note that God, who in the midst of all of that chaos, speaks. When he speaks, he brings order to the chaos. And the first thing that he said, says and does is, let there be light. 
we're going to get more into that. But this is the same God who created order in the midst of chaos. And in the midst of the chaos that the disciples are encountering on the open waters, they see Jesus coming. They might not even recognize it as Jesus, but it is Jesus, the one hovering over the waters, who brings order to chaos, the unstoppable force that cannot be contained. And I find it so interesting that this is what occurs immediately after what happened with all of the the crowd after Jesus feeds the thousands. In their minds, they thought that they could make him king by force. They would force his hand. They would establish him and his rule by the power of their might. And yet, Jesus was having none of it, would not have it that way. And so he turns away, withdraws from all of that. And now he's demonstrating his sovereign power in the midst of something that is incredible, unimaginable. You know, for all of the other signs that Jesus has performed, I think that this is one that often sticks out in the mind. Yeah, he fed the thousands, and we love that one. But honestly, is there anything, you know, amongst the kind of signs he's shown so far that is as cool as a man standing on water and just walking across it? Oh, and by, you know, and the, the imagery that I have in my mind is Jesus as he's walking across it is not like walking across ice that's cracking and ready to break. And he's just gently, gingerly trying to you know, get across. But it is God who owns the waters. Owning the waters as he walks across it, commands it to stay under his feet. And this is the God who's walking towards the disciples. This is the God who would save them from their fears. Secondly, Jesus is the one that saves us from our fears because Jesus is the God that spoke from the burning bush. If you recount all of Jesus' words thus far, what Jesus often reminds the Jewish people of is, you won't believe who I am because you won't even believe the words of those that came before me. And if you believe the words of a particular deliverer in the history of Israel, Moses, if you believed his words, then you would believe and know who I am. He says this, and he brings up the name of Moses a number of times. But now in the midst of the seas that are raging, as the disciples are in the midst of all of that, all that is going on, they see Jesus and they're frightened. They're frightened, and of course, you know, John doesn't get into the details of why they're frightened. The other uh, accounts go into that. You know, you can dive into it a little bit more. But John doesn't get into that. John doesn't get into the, the levels of fear that the disciples are experiencing. He doesn't go into the, the psychology and dissecting what is causing their hearts to, uh, to, to fear, to be terrified, and all of that. It's just kind of goes over. But then upon seeing Jesus, they are fearful. And what Jesus says in the midst of this scene is he says, it is I, do not be afraid. If you actually see what he says in terms of it is I, 
in the original languaging, he says, word for word, is, I am who I am. And the most literal would be, I am. If we recount all of Scripture and where we see that, and by the way, John brings this identification up more than once, and he'll continue to bring it up again and again, Jesus referring to himself as I am. Where do we see this? Well, we go back into Exodus as Israel is in Egypt, in the midst of its slavery, in the midst of its bondage. And as God has spoken to his people and said and promised that he would deliver his people and send a deliverer, now comes Moses onto the scene. But Moses has a checkered past. Moses has had previous failure. And the reason he failed is because rather than trying to do things God's way, he tries to accomplish certain goals and certain things his own way. And in the midst of that, he fails and he has to flee. Well, he returns at the command of God. And God tells him, go to my people and tell them that I have sent you to set them free, to bring them out of Egypt. And Moses' response, if you recall what it was, do you remember? Moses is fearful. He says, I can't go to them without telling them who sent me. Lord, who should I tell them sent me? By what name should I tell them? And to this, he says, go to my people and tell them, I am has sent you. Go to my people and say, I am who I am has sent you. And he says this as the voice of God is speaking from a bush that is burning on fire but not being consumed. None of us have ever seen such a thing. This bush is on fire and yet it's not burning up. And from that scene, the voice of God is emanating, saying, I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. In the face of all of Moses' fear, trepidation, hesitation, God speaks, and he says, I am. Here, the disciples are clutching for life. And in the midst of this terrifying scene, the least of which is this figure coming towards them, the voice that they hear calling out from that scene is Jesus saying, I am. It's me. Don't be afraid. Psalm chapter 46, verses 1 through 6 and 10 through 11, really touch upon this beautifully, on God, and this imagery as well. When it says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. Be still 
and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What they're experiencing, these disciples, John doesn't need to get into all the specific fear. Because what doesn't matter as much is what the specific fear is. It's not about diagnosing where the fear comes from or why they're feeling what they're feeling. What is the greater focus for John is what is the source and solution that will save them from their fear. It's Jesus. And so he says, I am. This is the God that is with his people. This is the one who is sovereign over all. This is the one who speaks and the earth melts or comes into being. This brings me to the third and final point. When we say that Jesus is the one that saves us from our fears, all of that is possible for us because Jesus is the God that brings light into our darkness. If you read the scene, what John writes about is he says, he points out very specifically that the disciples go, are preparing to go across the sea, and it is dark. He specifically says it's dark. John, of course, is talking about the time of day, but John, if you've actually uh, pay, you know, been paying attention and recall, he uses night and dark as a point of emphasis to bring about the idea of spiritual darkness. That's why in chapter 1 he talks about, you know, mankind, humankind, we are in darkness. But he is the light, and the darkness has not overtaken it, right? Amen? And then it talks later on about how one Nicodemus came looking for Jesus, and he came by night. And it's not just simply because he's trying to hide his identity or something, but it's the idea that John is trying to convey that there is a blindness that he has, a spiritual darkness of understanding, and so he comes to Jesus in the midst of that. For all that is going on, here the disciples are, and when Jesus is not with them, they're in darkness. It's night. What's so interesting is when Jesus says, it is me. I am here. And he says, do not be afraid. The passage then immediately goes and says, and they were glad to take him into the boat. They were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. As they took Jesus into the boat, as they received him save them. The implication here, without having to go into it, is the storm has been calmed. The disciples are brought to their destination. Because Jesus has entered the scene. Because Jesus is with them. When we consider what we've already just read in John, in John's presentation of the gospel, and then as we see what will come next, this plays an anchoring position in really uh, for all the, the, the presentation that John has of this entire section. 
because Jesus, being God, is the one that brings salvation. Jesus saves us and brings light to our darkness. You know, it's important for us to keep in mind that in our lives, I know we get fixated with what our fears, our struggles, our problems are. And if we could just know what our issues are, we kind of focus on it, fixate on it. And I think part of the problem that often makes us feel helpless is that we know what the problem, we often can talk about problems. We can often talk about what our fears are, right? And the fears are many. And by the way, some of those fears, I think, when we look at, uh, you know, John's presentation of the gospel and what Jesus says, what we would understand is some of those fears are not worth spending time on too much because they're not fears worthy to waste time on. But there are more substantial fears. Fears about who, you know, where we stand in relationship to God, our lives, eternity, the very emphasis of our sin because it's there there are real fears there are real problems and there are real concerns in the midst of all of this and this is considerable for all of us considering that sin and the issues that we are dealing with are real in the face of God who is holy I know that we look at the problems that we are confronted with on a daily basis in the moment our struggles and our fears is where we of the day, of the moment, is where we pay attention to. What we eat and drink, what we will wear that particular day. And yet Jesus' emphasis would be that there are bigger things to be concerned about and bigger issues that go far beyond that. But we can lose sight of that because we spend so much time worrying about what will I eat, what will I wear. And if we're talking literally about that, how much time? If I ask you for a moment right now just to think about how much time do you spend worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear? We stretch that out a little bit. Where are you going to live? If you're like me, then you spend probably more time worrying about it than you want to, right? And not that those things aren't important. It's just not the most important thing on the spectrum of important things. And in the scheme of all of that, in the midst of our broken lives, in the midst of a broken creation, in the midst of all of this, there are real fears that exist and that continue to work in the midst of our brokenness. Look at the world around us. Look at the circumstances of our society. Look at the circumstances of people's situations and the kind of suffering and the kind of even death that people are enduring. Can we say certainly that there are bigger issues than often the ones that we tend to get fixated with? Amen? And in the midst of all of that, we can often talk about, okay, here are what the problems are. Here's what the issues are. And yeah, you know what? Those are the same problems, the same issues that have existed ever since. If we spent maybe more time looking to what saves, who saves rather than simply only looking and re-diagnosing and re-examining what's wrong. Here Jesus is salvation. 
He comes to his disciples, and he is the one that can save. He is the one that can save us from our fears and save us in the midst of our sin because he is the God who, from the beginning, is the one who created us. He's the one that created everything and in his sovereign power came into this world to save. He is the voice that called out from the burning bush and in a mighty work of power revealed himself to his servant to say, when you go, you can go with confidence because you go claiming my name and you go tell them that I am has sent you. When we look at the circumstances of our lives were often overtaken by fear, and yet the thing that we need to constantly be reminded of is that as we're looking to do the work and the kingdom work of God, that we need to be reminded that I am is with us. Amen? I am has sent us, and I am is coming back for us to be with us forevermore. But in the meantime, what we are here to do is to receive Jesus into the circumstance. Even as the disciples received gladly Jesus into the boat, and Jesus quite literally took them where they needed to go. Maybe in the midst of your circumstances right now, maybe there's a preoccupation with the wrong kinds of fears. Or maybe an overemphasis on them. And for maybe... Some of the bigger fears, maybe we try not to think about them. But we are people for all of the fears that we are confronted with have a singular solution. I know that it sounds so like quaint to say Jesus is the answer. Right? Doesn't it sound quaint? Because in in my time in the church, whenever people uh, are asked a question from Scripture and they don't know the answer, they answer, you know, Jesus. <laughs> because they don't know what better to answer. And yet, in a funny way, it's true. Jesus is the answer. And when we talk about what ails us and what breaks us, Jesus is truly the answer. When we dig to the, bo- to the bottom of what it is. Jesus is the answer. Jesus saves us from our sin and from our fear because of who He is. No one else can do it, but He has brought. He brings light into our darkness. Receive the wonder of His salvation in the midst of all of your fears, our fears. Amen?